Welcome to Unspoken, Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the lives, accomplishments, and legacies of people we may pass on the street every day, unaware of their wisdom, courage, and determination, of the lessons we could learn if we only knew their stories. These are Stories Unspoken, Acts Unsung. This two-part story is about one of my very best friends, Bill Garcia. Like most of the people whose stories this podcast series will tell, Bill had no desire for the limelight, nor a full appreciation of just how inspiring his life is. In these times when it's hard to find role models, Bill Garcia's story is one that needs to be heard, and Bill allowed us to dive deep into a life that soars from the edge of rock and roll stardom to trial by fire in Vietnam. From the joys and challenges of coming home from war to discoveries of personal strength and determination that define what it is to be unstoppable. So buckle up, you're in for a wild ride. Here's Bill Garcia's story. Bill Garcia. Yes. Great to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Dano. Great. Well, so wanted to check right in with you. Looking at your life, which to me is a fascinating life. I'm really glad that I've gotten to know you as well as I have through the years. But something came up to me the other day. I was thinking about what your first memory was. What's the very first thing you can remember? Like after being born, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Gosh, Daniel, that's a good question. I don't really have an answer for that. I don't know that I can can recall. Well, maybe we can revisit that. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your parents. Uh, my mom and my dad. We were. I would say we were kind of middle class. My dad always had a good job. He worked in heavy equipment, mm -hmm. and he was really good at it. So he always had a job. My mom didn't work. Um, she drove for a while, then she got tired of driving, so we got bicycles. So um, it was pretty normal in the sense that our house was kind of the hub for our friends, and it was the hub for our families. Mm. So people would come over all the time. And my dad was a mechanic, too, so he was always working on a car or building something. Yeah. Were they... Originally from Oceanside, too, your parents? My mom's from New Mexico, Deming, mm -hmm. and my dad's from Vista. Ah, okay. And then their parents were from Mexico. Yeah. So, you know, one thing, we've had previous conversations about, you know, having grown up in this small town myself, I always thought it was idyllic. I always thought that there was no race issue here at all. But it seems as though there was, wasn't there? Yeah, but I think growing up when you're younger, it's there, but you're not into it that way. I mm -hmm. mean, I lived uh, in a part of town where, you know, the Spanish people lived and the black people lived in the east side of Oceanside. And we overall, in my experience, got along very well. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing was any different. You know, sometimes kids get in a fight or something like that, <laughs> but it was never any big terrible thing it was just our friends yeah 
Yeah. You know, we'd play football really hard and get upset at everybody, and then we'd go and grab something to eat all together, you know? And you went to public schools, sir? I went to Catholic school ah. from two to sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And then I always wanted to go to public school because uh, a lot of my friends were in public school from the neighborhood, you know? They all went to public school, and they would just ride their bikes or walk to school. So I always wanted to do that finally in, what is it, seventh and eighth, yeah, seventh grade. I got to go to public school. Yeah. Your family strikes me as really musical. Were your parents musical? My dad, my mom wasn't. My dad played guitar a little, and his brother played guitar fairly, fairly well. And he would uh, accompany his wife who sang. And then three of my, well, kind of two, and then another one, uh, aunts, my aunts, my brother's sisters, they sang. So we would always have music in the house, mm -hmm. you know, whether we're going to somebody's house or for sure if we're having a get-together. People would just drop by sometimes, and before you know it, there's 10 or 12 people there, and we're playing guitars. They're playing guitars and uh -huh. singing and stuff. When did you start playing? I started being interested when my cousin started playing guitar. Because we had guitars around the house, but I just had never picked it up because I was playing the accordion. Really? <laughs> I, I mean, that thing was bigger than me. And, you know, it was one of those things where I'm sure he was just a traveling salesman, you know, and he uh -huh. just went to our house and said, oh, yeah, you're something that... I think he has a musical ear and all that kind of stuff, you know. And so before you knew it, I was playing the accordion. <laughs> and I was playing the accordion for three years. And then finally, that's when I saw my cousin playing the guitar. And he was much more popular playing the guitar than playing the, <laughs> I was being playing the accordion. And I went, I got to do that. Uh -huh. So that's kind of when I started. I was probably six, yeah, six going into seventh grade. Really? And did you get a guitar right away? Did you have your own? Uh not right away. I used my dad's. But then as I started to play more and it got a little more serious for me, my dad got me a guitar. Mm -hmm. And when did you start playing in bands? How did that get going? That started probably when I was in eighth grade to ninth grade. <clears throat> Because part of the people that would come to our house and everything, before you know it, I had I had other friends that played the guitar really good, and I was learning from them, and we were you know get together and jam, and then um, friends like from the neighborhood brought his piano. Wolford Crane it was his name. I shouldn't use his name. It was probably huh? Mm -hmm. But anyway, he would come and play piano. He could play piano really good, and we'd get somebody who could play drums a little bit and. You just kind of keep in a rhythm, you know? Yeah. You had congas and stuff sometimes. So um, so probably, I would say, going into a freshman high school, I probably was already in a band. Yeah, eighth grade to, to ninth grade. So just in the garage, or did you actually get out and play games? No, we started to play. <clears throat> I know, it's it's really amazing because we had a full-on band with horns and everything that I was in. We had like three guitar players, a bass player, four horns, a singer, and a drummer. <laughs> we had an <laughs> army. And uh, so that was the first band I was in, yeah. Uh-huh. So 
the one that that I'm most familiar with, I remember going to dance concerts and standing by the edge of the, probably the first time I ever laid eyes on you was with mm. the lyrics. And uh, tell me about the lyrics. Well, the lyrics, we had already been in the band, different bands, and we put this band together, and there were different iterations of the band called the Lyrics. One was this big band. They changed the name from mm -hmm. one name to another to the Lyrics. And then some of the people from Oceanside left and everything, so we teamed up with some people from Carlsbad, and it was still called The Lyrics. And um, we got some of those guys to play, so we had that band for a while. And then, uh, you know, like as bands go, because you're young and everything, it's changing all the time, you know. So we probably went through, I don't know, three, five iterations, six iterations of The Lyrics prior to The Lyrics that kind of wanted to start making records and stuff. Uh-huh. So what was it that made that transition happen into recording? Um, we just had a band that was pretty good, and we had gotten another lead singer. We had two two lead singers and um, three lead singers, actually, for a while, because we got a guy from Del Mar, too. And... Uh, and we were making, we started make, writing our own music, or the, some of the people in the band, the singers mainly, writing their own music. And so we just thought, God, wouldn't it be great to try to do something with this? And a friend of ours, who was a friend of one of the singers in our band, that he knew somebody who would be interested in maybe managing a, mm. a group. Mm -hmm. So that's how we kind of got going on that vein, and we met him at his house and everything, and he asked us what we want, and we said, gosh, we'd just like to make records and make some money and, mm -hmm. you know, do that. So he made that happen fairly quickly? Four years <laughs> <laughs> was quick, yeah, I think so. <laughs> before we started, uh, I think before we first started to finally get on a real label. <laughs> <laughs> Overnight sensation. Right, right. Yeah, it took, it took a, I know, it seemed like it was quick, but it was more or less, I mean, just with that part of the band, it probably was mm -hmm. at least three years prior to a door opening for us. So then what happened? You had, you had a, a song on the charts even, didn't you? We had a song, we um, went through different, we were recording a lot, we had a lot of original material, and we had recorded this song called Mr. Man, mm -hmm. and it became like number one on the San Diego radio stations, uh -huh. and they were playing it like they do other rock and roll songs, uh -huh. so we were like really, really excited about that. Get to hear yourself on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I, it was just like, I think, a movie that came out here somewhat, where you're driving, you hear, and you have to pull over to listen to the song yeah, yeah. on the side of the road, because we happened to be going to another place to play, and the song came out for the first time that we heard it, so we had to pull over and listen uh -huh. to it. Mm. So when the when the record hit, did that open other opportunities? Yeah, up? of course. Yeah, that started to uh, we started to be able to play uh, larger kind of venues. You know, 
bigger halls in San Diego and like that. And then when bands came to town, we started to open for those bands. And before we knew it, we were playing at the sports arena and the colleges, you know, UCSD, UCSB, you know, all those, mm -hmm. San Diego State. And so we, we started playing kind of like those venues out there. And then we had some larger ones where we played at the old Balboa Stadium. Mm -hmm. We played there a couple of times with some, some, some big bands. Who did you have the for there? Big bands of the 60s, you know. Uh-huh. At the stadium. Who, who? The Doors, uh -huh. along with, I think, Strawberry Alarm Clock. Um, gosh, I can't think of some of the bands of there. But if I had a list, I probably could tell yeah. you. Because <laughs> we played... In, you know, in front of a lot of a lot of groups at that time, and it, it seemed to be easier at that time. You know, sixties were didn't have a lot of the stuff that goes on nowadays. So people would come and play. They usually have three or four bands playing one night, even. Yeah, yeah. That ended up you ended up going on the road with some of those bands. Did you yeah, know? we ended up going on the road with uh, the Doors, and got to know the Doors uh, for a short period of time. Uh, fairly well because we were, you know, playing with them, but we got to know their roadies really, really well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were setting up our equipment, they would set up their equipment, and after that they got tired and they said, why don't you just use our equipment? And we said, okay, we'll just use the Doors equipment, <laughs> right? So that that was kind of cool. But then what happened was the Doors were changing record labels Mm. or something, and they got a new manager and a new booking agent who were their roadies. Really? Yeah, they, they were roadies, but they were smart guys. You know, one was becoming an attorney, and the other one knew he wanted to go in the music business. So knowing those guys, they got a place up in La Cienega where their um, studio was and their office was in one building. Mm hmm and so if we were happened to be up in L.A. And, and recording and stuff, which we had started to do, uh, we could stop by there and see what's going on. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> How old were you then? I was all of 20, mm -hmm. 19 to 20, and the rest of the band was 17. Wow. wow. <laughs> I was the oldest. <laughs> uh, man, that must have been an exciting time. It was really, really great. It was, it was really great. I remember having my first legal drink on a plane, getting ready to go to Oakland to, to play at a concert. That you know? uh -huh. <laughs> was exciting. We were actually starting to do part of our dream. Uh huh. You know. So what happened to the dream? Well, come sixty-eight. Yeah, no, sixty. Yeah, 68. The Vietnam War was happening at the time, and they were drafting a lot of people. And I had gone to college. I was going to Polymer College mm -hmm. at the time, part, partly anyway. And when we went on tour with the Doors, I left at the school. So I got reassigned to 1A. Mm. So dur during that first part of the year, I got my draft notice. Because so they were drafting the most draftable. That's... Yeah, that you, you're going to be called to go, and they oh, give yeah. you a date and everything. Yeah, yeah, and that's what was it. So this was when were you actually out on the road when you got your draft notice? No, we had come back home, and uh, 
we kind of went with the doors a couple of times. So this was the second time. So in between there, I had gotten the draft notice, probably somewhere in April, May, I think, maybe somewhere in there. And so I was talking. I was not for the war, although I tried to get information about it or anything because I knew nothing about it given what I was doing. So I started to find out about it a little bit, and then I um, started to say, I don't want to do this. So I tried to get out on a lot of legal things, bad mm -hmm. back, bad eyes, flat feet, leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then they had this whole thing about if you leave, you know, you can't come back. Yeah, because it was yeah. a couple of bands we played with a band from Canada one time. And they said, "Guy said, yeah, you can come with us. Go cross the border to Canada if you want to live in Canada for a while." But I was young and still naive and not worldly at all. Mm -hmm. So it was like a big fear for me, you know, to oh my God, to leave and not be able to come back ever. Wow. That'd be kind of I didn't, wasn't ready for that. So you got inducted. Yeah, and. How were you feeling when that happened? It happened, you know, it's one of those things that you, you kind of have to wait for because they give you a date and you're waiting for it. And then once it comes, things happen really quick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went through my regular training and then my uh, extra training. And, and then it seemed like after, what was that? What is it, three months and three months, seven months, you know, or six months or something? You know, I was sitting in a plane going to Vietnam. Wow, within six months. Yeah. Wow. Did you have any say whatsoever in what kind of work or what kind of assignment or MOS you would have? Uh, no. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> Not that I know of or that they gave me and I wasn't aware of. So tell me about arriving in Vietnam. What was that like? Well... It's hard to explain in the sense that I've I've never had an experience. Uh, thank God I'd been on a plane before, but never in that long of a flight. But you get off, and it feels like um, the air temperature hits you really hard at first. Mm -hmm. They open the the plane up, and it's like 110 degrees or something. But also, you know, it's kind of like living in San Diego. You know, we would go down surfing or go down to Mexico or Baja once in a while, so it kind of gave me that kind of a feel of yeah. really being in a different place or different country, yeah. you know. But I didn't know I was pretty glass glazed over, maybe, yeah. with the whole thing. It was happening, but I couldn't catch up to be present that it was happening. You know? Right, right. Mm. So it sounds like that transition, the six-month transition, speeded into a trip to Vietnam. right. The trip to Vietnam, you, when did you get your assignment? And you, you, went out, you were out in the field. You served in the field. Yeah. What they do is they give you a week to, they, they kind of take all the new people in and they try to take, train them and acclimate them at least as much as they can for a week. And then you're sent to your duty assignments. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suspect for people in the field, any of the duty assignments are just as bad as any other, you know? Mm -hmm. Because all I heard was, don't go here, and, and then they sent me there, and they said, well, if you go here, don't go there, and they sent me there, and if you're there, don't go here for sure, and they sent me there. Mm. So uh, uh, when they took me out to the field, 
um, it was late. They normally don't go from the main base camp out to where you're at in the field if it's dusk. But we did leave, and I was going to be assigned to the 25th Infantry Division Mechanized Inf Infantry uh, Recon Unit. So we rode APCs, armored personnel carriers, like mm -hmm. little tanks with a 50, 50 caliber gun on it. And we left kind of at dusk. So um, that was a whole experience in itself, just that journey going out there my first day, knowing if this is what it's like, my days are numbered. <laughs> wow. So dusk, obviously, the, the misgiving would be that that's the time it'd be easy to get ambushed? Yes. And we only had one track, which you never really? go along with one, one track. You usually have at least three. Wow. Even just to do routine things, you know. So we were just going as quickly as we could through the city, out through the rubber, um, uh, the um, pad rice paddies to the rubber plantations, and that's where we were. We were near the Michelin rubber, and uh, in the back of there, that's where we were. Mm -hmm. Kind of circled the wagons. That's where our place was. So you managed to get there unscathed and unnoticed. Unscathed, unnoticed. And um, dark, so dark I couldn't see anything, so I had no bearing on where I was until the morning, which was quite surprising. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the, you saw action soon, I assume, given what you said about when somebody <laughs> says, don't go there, and you <laughs> went there, etc. It sounds like you must have been in a hot zone. Well, let's see. I was pretty lucky in the sense that, let's see, I got in the field. April 10th, I think it was. And um, from April, May to June 6th. See, when you have these, you know these days. Any vet yeah. knows those dates, right? Yeah, <laughs> Whatever yeah. date it is for them. So uh, I saw a, uh, uh, a family on a card get blown up, you know, hitting a mine because they have to mine the roads all the time. So that was kind of like a jolt into reality and, Saw a couple of things like that happen, you know, nothing heavy until uh, uh, kind of June 6th in our little area that we were, oh, where I woke, where I got up that morning when mm -hmm. I first went out there, I was right next to a mountain called Nui Baden. It's called the Black Virgin Mountain. And the Black Virgin Mountain is surrounded on three sides, only 10 clicks away from the Cambodian border. Wow. So we kind of had the top of the mountain, you know, the U.S. had the top of the mountain for communications and radio and all that. They had the middle because it's all honeycombed really? inside, yeah. And then we kind of circled around and had mainly the bottom. So when I woke up in that morning, I noticed that there was this huge mountain right next to where we were, and we're in the middle of the jungle next to this mountain, which was the last place they said you wanted to be, uh -huh. other than the triple canopy jungle, which is a... Which is contiguous, which is touches that mountain too. So this it's called right the, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail too, is it not? It was kind of at the end. We were kind of almost at the end of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, mm -hmm. going down to Macau, and the Ninth uh, Infantry was down over there. So um, to get back to your question, so it wasn't. So we were based right at the base of the mountain, right, taking care of and protecting uh, people who do 
the roads. They call it rock crusher. It was what it was called, you know, where they crush the rocks to build the roads uh, and stuff. Yeah. So we were right up against the mountain supporting those engineers on with, you know, our base camp there, kind of mm -hmm. out there. So on June 6th, we got hit a little bit. It wasn't a big thing, but it was enough to get you going. You start getting mortars coming in, rocket grenade, uh, RPGs. And and some bunkers were kind of hit. But what they were doing is they were on one side hitting us mainly and, and walking around the other side for a big offensive that they were going to have. And then finally, uh, we had little skirmishes in between there. But in, in June 19th, when we were leaving our base camp, going through the city, we that's when it all came together for them. Wow. <laughs> so we went through the city of Tainan, and normally our unit being smaller because we're a recon unit, our job was to go find trouble and call for help, basically. Mm -hmm. And so normally we were in at the end of a convoy, but... Things got mixed up, and so we were the f in the front of the convoy. Charlie Company was behind us, and I think Bravo Company was behind them. And we were going out to this place in a jungle that was going to be a big operation because they saw a lot of NVA out there. And that's where we were headed. So we had to cut through the city to get out there. So in going through the city, uh, we got hit right away with RPGs and machine gun fire and all that. Mm. So that was my first... Big, yeah, we were there for three days. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Mm. So, and I was very fortunate. Everybody on my track, by that time, I was, I was, I was a radio man on our track. Uh, so I was assigned to the lieutenant who was in charge of our, our unit, our platoon. And everybody got wounded but me. Really? Yeah. We got hit this way, this way, a shrapnel this way, this way. Even the freaking dog got hit <laughs> a little so bit. So you were inside the track? No, you, you were on top of the track. Really? Yeah. You d don't get inside in case you hit a uh, landmine or stuff like that. So mm -hmm. we were always on top. And the, the, the grunts, the legs, never like to go with us because they walk everywhere they go to, and then they riff everywhere they are. Riffing meaning they're they're doing whatever they need to do, search and destroy in that area. Mm -hmm. We just drive there, and then we riff. But they hated being on top of our tracks. They said, "Oh yeah, this is really good shooting. <laughs> you know, you're being, like being on top of a car. You're on the fender of a car. Oh yeah, just driving through the jungle, <laughs> waiting for somebody to shoot you." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, but we would get used to it, and that's just our job, and that's what we did. Well, that had to just be. I mean, th this is, what, weeks, a matter of weeks into your... Well, that's been, so that would be April, May, June, so about a month and a half. Well, but still, I mean, what was that like in, emotionally? And... Well, um, after that was over, we went to a big base camp for a few days, and I was on guard, I remember, and I had a late guard around 2 a.m. or something, and I just came to the reality, and I think every soldier does that's in the field at one point in time that's actually seen combat and know they're going to see more or already had been in or whatever, come to this kind of uh, reality check. So I remember for me, I was going, this is crazy, man. I was playing music with all these bands like six, eight months ago or something. This, And now I'm here. I was like, this is not right. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. Why me? <laughs> Yeah. All that stuff. 
And I literally kind of had to deal with all that stuff right there. And um, so I had a couple of options. I could either become a druggie mm -hmm. or I could just hang out and try to do as least as possible and not be, you know, just try to keep to myself. Or I could become what I call, you know, just become a soldier and just do what you needed to do and get out. Mm -hmm. And that's the path I took. Did you find yourself really conscious of how much time was ahead of you in Vietnam? Every day. Yeah. Everybody had calendars, 365 days, da 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 da, da and you <laughs> color in a, mm -hmm. a square on your calendar. Yeah. So that when you know, you know, you got, you know, hey, John has 38 days, you know, he's <laughs> at the seven days, or, oh, you're, you only have 299. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it was pretty, uh, yeah. yeah, you knew exactly in that time frame what to do. So one of the things that I've heard from friends of mine that have, have served in Vietnam was that actually that that system, knowing that you had 300 days or whatever, actually was a, to some degree a disadvantage, psychologically speaking. Well, it could be, and it's kind of Murphy's Law, because it did happen while I was there. You know, new guys get hit, get wounded, get killed. For some reason, they they just... And, but it's not their fault. They've only been in country maybe anywhere from one day to, let's say, two weeks, three weeks, and, and they're still, and maybe they're standing up at the wrong time, you know, or they're, they move right instead of moving left. Mm -hmm. Or you, you can't read the terrain. After you've been in, see, we lived in the jungle 98% of the time, 99% of the time. So we would go out and camp like wagon, you know, <laughs> covered wagons except mm -hmm. APCs. And circle we would them circle up. them in the middle of the jungle and stay all night. And we'd mm. stay out there for days. So like anything, I think, for that period of time, you get to a sense of how being out there is. You become part of that environment. Mm. You can read the air. You can see the breeze. You can know when something is not right. You know, you just become attuned to that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then what happens is that when you get short, what we would call short, now somebody has seven days left or 10 days left. As an example, the tour was 365 days. And if you got out at that time, you had six months to do in the Army for your two-year deal. So if you extended, though, in Vietnam for two months, you could leave Vietnam and go right straight home, and you didn't have to do the extra four months at mm, home. Mm -hmm. So me and this uh, other guy did that. And it's a, it's a, it's a chance. You take a chance. And uh, no kidding, at the end of seven days, they took us back into big base camp. But, but the other guy, my, I, I can't remember his name right now, he went he had to go out in the field. And bigger than thing, he got his uh, Achilles heel shot off. Oh my god. I saw him when they flew in and stuff, but it hmm. you know, so that's I think what they talk about when you're measuring days. Because yeah. you're scared you want to get past a certain thing, because if you get up past a certain thing, you're gonna be 
at least you think you're going to be pretty fine, you know? Right. And then you're doing it for so long, now you're worried, you know, some stupid thing's going to happen and off you because now you get to go home. Yeah. Because that's the psychological side of that. Yeah. It seems you, you were promoted on the battlefield, were you not? Mm-hmm. Uh, from what to what? Oh, from private to corporal to corporal to a sergeant. Uh-huh. And I was a sergeant of the command tract. And um, like I said, uh, it was interesting because for just a little guy like me, I was like a little Tasmanian devil. <laughs> it was interesting because nobody, if I got this reputation somehow that my track was really, really strict. But if you wanted to be on a track that had their shit together, so to speak, if I can say that. That's fine. You wanted to be in my track. Mm-hmm. But it's a command track, meaning all the other tracks have one antenna mm. for radio communication. The command track has at least two antennas. So then the enemy knows That's who's, who's on the it. command track, right? And they try to knock out, obviously, the command track first. So you're... You're kind of a sitting duck that way, too. Mm-hmm. So some people didn't want to do that. But I had a great crew. I had a great crew, and, the, and the, we, all, we all made it. So that meant you commanded the track, or did you command that platoon? Just a track. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd have anywhere from mm, five of us to eight to nine of us at a time on the track. Yeah. So you were you still operating? You were a radio operator still? Or? I r- carried the, <clears throat> the radio for six months, and I finally got to turn it over when I became the track commander. Mm. And fortunately, uh, you know, being a new guy, that's another thing. They gave me the radio. They want to shoot the radio person mm. too, so they can give the new guy the radio. So I had the radio, <laughs> not knowing I'm just going, oh God, I got to carry this thing too. So, uh, but I did carry it for six months, and uh, it was really great because our lieutenant was actually a the great. What was he? The uh, grand his great grandfather, I guess, was uh, General Bradley. Really. And he um, wore two pistols, ivory, ivory, uh, ivory handled uh-huh. pistols, and mustache and everything. <laughs> and he was um, he was a career uh, person, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, but so he really knew his stuff, and he did a lot of things to really help our platoon out, not to get into any crazy stuff unwittingly or not take a chance. You know what I mean? He was really really good and. Luckily, listening to him, because every place he went, I had to go. So I learned to read mm. the maps better. I learned to talk on the phone better. I learned what the codes were for certain things better and talk to the helicopter people, whether they're the major or dust-offs or things like that. Yeah. So when I became, uh, when he left and I became track commander, unfortunately, we didn't get a lot of different, we had, we went through four or five different lieutenants and they weren't always as, well-versed as him. Mm-hmm. So um, I met you when you were on R&R. Ah. <laughs> that was, a, a matter of fact, I'll never forget that. I was playing in a band, and uh, our guitar player called me up, and he said, Bill Garcia's in town, and he wants to jam with us, which to me, I, you might as well have said, you know, Jimi <laughs> Hendrix is in town, as far as I was concerned. 
So there you were with no hair. <laughs> he came over to the house and we played some music. Um, but there's a story behind that R and R. Yeah, the story was my best friend from Vietnam, and we've been friends ever since, uh, was our medic na named Doc. We called him Doc, of course. But um, so I had been there long enough after Doc. He got there about six or seven months after I was already in country. So I was already tenured, so to speak. And um, he always wanted to be on our track, but Doc is one of these people that if anything can go wrong, it's going to happen around Doc. <laughs> and he was on like six tracks that got blown up, you know, that hit a mine. And I would not let him on my track. I said, no way, man. This guy's jinx. You know, I don't want him around, right? But we became good friends, and we were like really becoming good buds. And he was good buds with, with every, almost everybody because he's just that kind of a guy. But with our track and the people that we have, because I have the, not only would I have the lieutenant on my track, I'd also have the, uh, sometimes I'd have the, uh, the platoon leader or on our track. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, actually, when I did change tracks, I got off the, uh, my, my track, we had the lieutenant or we had the platoon leader on it. So, um so anyway, Doc and I, so I had already gone on an R&R &R once to Hawaii early on. It just came up, and, and I went. And I came back, and I had one more R&R &R because I extended. And John was going to, Doc was going to go on an R&R. &R. We, go we were going to go to Australia, and we were so stoked about going to Australia. So we get in line, we get our R&R, &R &R, and we get in line to go to Australia, and it's by the number of people. And no kidding, it broke. The line broke between him and me. He got on, I didn't get on. Oh, to no. go to Australia, and we said, oh, what are we going to do? Doc says, God, I want to go to Australia. So we went through that whole thing and everything, and we you don't want to go there, I don't want to go here. And then we had this thought, well, let's go to Hawaii. I said, yeah, Hawaii's kind of cool, let's go to Hawaii. So we flew to Hawaii, and then we got to Hawaii, and we said, God, you know, nobody's watching us or doing anything. I think we're okay. Why don't we just fly home? <laughs> so that's what we did. Which you weren't supposed to do. We were not supposed to do that. Uh. So we flew home. He went to New York. I went to California and knocked on the window of my parents. They about died. My mom, when she opened the window <laughs> to see who was knocking on the window, and, my, and, and you know, it was just not expected, you know? And um, Doc, uh, gosh, everything happens to Doc, I swear to God. On his way to New York, he's having a letter come to him, a Dear John, and his name is John, uh -huh. letter coming to Vietnam saying, the Dear John letter. Oh, wow. So when he got to New York, he got a big surprise with his old girlfriend and everything, and that was not cool. But yeah. but he came over to our uh, to our place. He left New York and came over to California, and then we went to my girlfriend's house for a couple of days, and I think we stayed an extra day because we didn't want to <laughs> leave so soon. <laughs> and so we flew out, and our way we landed in Hawaii. And um, on the front page of the Hawaii newspaper was our unit 
getting ready to go into Cambodia. Wow. I mean, there was it was the fourth and twenty the fourth and twenty third tomahawks, and we went wow. So when we got when we got back, that's when I had less than seven days in country, mm. and of course John didn't and Doc didn't. So they it was the biggest movement I've ever seen of just I don't know how many APCs and tanks and stuff. We're going down the road, going on the way to Cambodia. And I went into base camp. Didn't they try to bribe you to have you stay? They did. They did. Because I had already, uh, I had received some medals and stuff like that. and But they were going to give me what they call a silver star if I would <laughs> go another year. <laughs> another year. Yeah. <laughs> I take it the answer was thanks. The no answer thanks. was no. I said, well, if I'm a, if I was supposed to be rewarded a silver star, why don't they just give me the silver star no matter what, right? I thought that's how that thing goes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was by then the old uh, you know the old man on the block, so to speak, and you know talking to the people that were coming in and the people that were there, and I was a good source of information for people for a while, but. You know, and so, uh, no, I turned that down and decided to come home. Bill Garcia's story is far from over. Be sure to listen to part two of Unspoken Unsung's interview of Bill Garcia. It's a gripping story of wins and losses, struggles and triumphs. Tune in to the next episode of Unspoken, Unsung. Thanks again for listening to Unspoken, Unsung. Perhaps there's someone you look up to, someone whose accomplishments are unspoken, whose life is unsung, and who might be willing to share their experiences. If so, send an email to unspokenunsung2019 at gmail.com with a little bit about the person and how they inspire you. The Unspoken Unsung interview was recorded in the Converser studio, post-production in Brother Rock Projects, both in Carlsbad, California, Martin Danner and Ken Langan engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langan. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. The podcast theme music, Hope Not Hate, was written by and performed by David Gwynne Jones for Zapsblatt. Other music provided by Zapsblatt.